welcome to the 12th episode of the Independence Cam podcast. My name is Charlie Caruso and as always I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host Oliver Yates. Oliver and I have the privilege to be joined by today's guest Jeff Cousins who is a highly successful businessman, environmental activist, author and collector. The founding chair of the Australian arm of the children's charity Starlight Foundation back in 1988 and was the founding chair of the Sydney Museum of Contemporary Art in 1990. In 1995, Jeff became the first CEO of telephone and pay television network Optus Vision, and for a decade he was the senior advisor for or to the Prime Minister John Howard. Uh, from 2006 to 15, he was on the board of Telstra, IAG Insurance, Hudson Conway, PBL and Seven, and worked for 25 years with Australia's leading advertising agency George Patterson, rising to become chairman. In 2007, Jeff published a novel called The Butcher Bird, which is set in Australian boardrooms, yachts and waterfront mansions, a thriller that details shocking corruption and disturbing, unethical and probably illegal behaviour, perhaps inspired by some of the behaviour Jeff himself witnessed and was shocked by in the corporate world. The same year that The Butcher Bird was published, Jeff Cousins became a ferocious environmental campaigner, opposing the Guns Pulp Mill in Tasmania and later the location of Woodside's gas processing plant in the north of Broome in 2012, taking aim at our recent guest, Malcolm Turnbull, who was then Environmental Minister. Jeff took the role of leading Australian Conservation Foundation from 2014 to 2018 and a very robust public stand against government support for the Adani coal mine in central Queensland. He has also served on the boards of the Smith family, the Sydney Theatre Company and the St George Foundation. Jeff Cousins, welcome to the Independence Camp podcast. Well, thanks very much for having me. Jeff, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us today. I mean, I was doing research on your background and, and um, and I found it fascinating, to be honest, and I do admire uh, the positions that you've taken over your career on a variety of issues. And what I really wanted to do today is to uh, ask you, I guess, to talk a little bit about uh, the club and um, explaining how the system, the system works. Because, you know, on this podcast, we now have thousands of people and particularly those people who are finding that they're, they're closed out of systems, whether it be the political system, because they don't fit in with an existing party and they just don't see these systems working. But they don't understand within business this club or this system that seems to exist, which, in my view, seems to be pitching Australia's business leaders really against Australian citizens in the sense that these business leaders who are running these countries seem to consistently do anything, including remain silent on key matters where they should talk, putting their business interest ahead of their national interest or even national responsibility as a leader to actually stand up and talk about issues that are important to citizens, even though they actually represent a company at the same time. So could you allude to us and, and take us through how the, the club or the, the, you perceive that the club or the system works? And I think it'd be ideal to talk about it. You've been in it for years uh, and I'd love to hear your take on it. It's interesting you, you use the word club because uh, it's, it is actually quite an appropriate word. It shouldn't be, of course. There is, shouldn't be any relationship whatever between being a public company director and a member of a particular club that has special interests that only represents the members of that club. There shouldn't be any comparison whatever. But unfortunately, 
A lot of public company directors totally misunderstand where their responsibilities lie. And usually you will hear even the most experienced directors say, well, our responsibility is to the shareholders of the company. Just in law, that is a misunderstanding of what their responsibilities are. The law doesn't say any such thing. It says their responsibilities are to the company. It doesn't mention shareholders. The company is an entirely different thing to simply the shareholders. Yes, of course, shareholders are a, a massively important part of it, but so are staff, so is the community, so are suppliers, so are customers, so are creditors. All of these things are, are part of the company. And the shareholders are entire, the analogy I always use or the statement I always use when I get into debates with public company directors about it are this. The shareholders are entitled to every dollar of profit properly gained and not one dollar of profit improperly gained. So it's not legally gained or illegally gained, it's properly gained. When you've met all the responsibilities to the community, to the staff, to the, to the state laws, the federal, everything else, then yes, the shareholders get everything else. They don't stand before or in front of all of those requirements. And I tell you, probably 80% of all the directors in this country right now don't really understand that. And that's where that kind of thinking starts. Well, Jeff, I'm interested in that because the definition of properly gained, I mean, is, is a kind of a, um, it's almost like a, a, a moral term. I don't know whether there is a corporate definition of, of that. So I'd, I'd like you to kind of allude to that a little bit more. And the other thing is, is that if I recall right, there was a question of actually putting in place under director's duties a, a better requirement for them to consider um, other stakeholders rather than shareholders, but it was thrown out by... by um, by the company's institute, as I understand, uh, as they decided they didn't want to do that. So, but you know, there's probably more than me. Luke, uh, take us through it. Yeah, well, I mean, a lot of those um, uh, organisations like the Business Council of Australia and the Australian Institute of Company Directors, uh, they're membership organisations and membership organisations, in my experience, usually sink to the lowest common denominator. It's not the leaders uh, of great companies who do have a wider view who tend to prevail in those organisations because it comes down to numbers. So they sink to the lowest common denominator, and you're right. And both the Business Council of Australia and the Australian Institute of Company Directors have consistently opposed any kind of positive developments in those areas. It's only very recently, of course, that the Business Council will even talk about climate change, for instance. And it's quite remarkable. It's, it's now got a policy on climate change. It wouldn't have thought of that. A few years ago, it was the Business Council of Australia. Uh, when the Banking Royal Commission, for instance, was coming in, they said it was a waste of time. They opposed it uh, strongly. I mean, how could there possibly be any bad behaviour? from the major banks. Well, of course, we discovered uh, 
there was more, more than a touch of it. So yes, that again does come back to the concept that you raised of, of the club. And as I say, it comes back to a misunderstanding of, of what public company directors should be doing and all decent business people should be doing. The other point that you raised, which I've had personal experience with, is the idea that people who hold senior positions in big companies, CEOs, uh, chairman and so on, shouldn't express views yeah. on what Australia needs or what the community needs or what the environment needs. They should only talk about things to do with their particular company or industry. And when I was CEO at Optus, I had that. Uh, I had a very particular situation where Pauline Hanson had just come into the Australian Parliament. She made her maiden speech. And just at that time, I'd been asked to make a speech to a Sydney Morning Herald function. I think they assumed it would be about telecommunications or something, and it would have been, except the day before, I, I heard this appalling, bigoted uh, speech uh, in the Australian Parliament. So I started my uh, remarks by reading the Oxford English Dictionary of, of, of bigotry and uh, and uh, then I quoted from her uh, the speech in the Australian Parliament. I invited the audience to decide whether perhaps they were one and the same. And I had at least one of the shareholders of office who came to me and said, you can't do this. You are, as the CEO, are not permitted to speak on matters other than those relating to our company. And I said, ah, oh, that's where you've made a mistake. When I signed a contract with the company, I didn't give up my rights as a citizen. And that's the point, Oliver, really. Uh, these people remain citizens. There have been some remarkable examples in the United States of recent times, uh, both positively and negatively in that regard. Uh, when the, uh, the whole question of gay rights came up in the United States, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, came out and made uh, statements in support of uh, gay rights being expanded. He is himself a gay man. He was criticised by uh, a lot of people who were shareholders in Apple and associated with the company. But what Apple had done very cleverly was to have in place a policy that clearly delineated the rights of senior executives to speak on issues of national importance so that he and the people who supported him were immediately able to say, no, he's totally in line with what the company requires. There was a CEO of another company, I just can't remember the name, one of the big fast food companies, however, who lost his job because he spoke out on another issue and that company did not have a clear policy in place. So, I think your point is very well made and uh, I believe that any responsible company should make it absolutely clear uh, in its list of policies and God knows they all have so many policies outlined that you can, you can hardly step over. They should make it perfectly clear that of course people do retain their rights as citizens to speak out. 
Um, I, I've got a question. It's it's very similar, actually, to a question that I asked Malcolm Turnbull around, is it in order to uh, gain political success, is it a necessary trait of integrity? And I do wonder if, if people have the assumption that being um, a, a leader, a corporate leader and having that platform, if their integrity and, as you've said, their, their views as a citizen is expected to be that necessary trade. And you've articulated that really well in terms of having to have the right structure or policy around to permit that um, platform being used for a positive purpose and an important purpose, which I think has silenced perhaps a lot of corporate personalities as it has um, political ones, is it as simple as putting a policy as uh, Tim Cook had uh, to, to fix this problem or is the problem a little bit more nuanced and is there other things at play here? Well, I don't suggest that a policy like that would fix any of those issues and particularly not in politics. And uh, I'm interested that you raise Malcolm's name because, of course, uh, I had some significant uh, shall we say, uh, contests of that kind with him. And I think the great mistake he made as a politician is he never pursued these uh, concepts. He, he never was prepared to prosecute them in the parliament and run the risk of being defeated. Sometimes he threw these ideas into the air, but then he wasn't prepared to go into the parliament and put his career at risk for them. And I would contrast that with another leader of the same party. So I'm not talking about party politics here. John Howard, who, whether you like his policies or not, did consistently pursue them uh, on a number of famous occasions to the risk of his leadership. So I think the same applies in corporate life. You can put the policy in place. It's a help. It certainly doesn't mean it's going to protect you you're still going to have to stand up and speak out and, and you know, prosecute your views to the best of your ability. But it, it, it does give some useful framework and uh, it's a first step. But no, you're quite right. On its own, it wouldn't solve anything. So, Jeff, just going back to this, this rights, is, I mean, I get it, it's more than just, you know, Australia doesn't seem to have any rights anyway, as citizens, which is probably one of the most scary things that we have at the moment. But, I mean, as you're a senior leader, and a few of us have been in senior positions, the, the concept of right is greater. It, it becomes a, a resp responsibility. I, I, I felt very much that it is a responsibility. You can't ask people, I mean, one of the reasons why I stood for politics was because I was out telling people they should do everything they can to address climate change. And coming from a political family, how could I do that and not actually decide to use my political skills to have a run at a seat? So I was just unlucky Josh was in my seat. So it is, it is, uh, you know, it is a responsibility because they have the megaphone. They're the ones who are fronting the newspaper day after day. There are many activists who have the best intentions but never get any coverage. Yeah. Do, you, do business leaders understand their response to their responsibility? Is one question. And then secondly, I'd like your view on the bullying that comes down from ministerial departments where you get called up by the advisor and you know like I'm only imagining now that uh, that Josh has got his minions out there um, you know calling up every uh, bank and financial institution lining them up to say nice things about the budget otherwise we'll have their banking license pulled or or otherwise if you don't say nice things or you don't question stuff you're going to find yourself called back under um, 
under the uh, job keeper uh, uh, job keeper arrangements what is that like surely not that would never happen I... no, people don't believe it jeff so like you know you, you've been in business for a long period of time I know this goes on, uh, but what's your experience? Is it, is it absolute rubbish or it absolutely goes on? Oh, of course, of course. It's a fundamental part of how the political system runs and the whole idea when you launch a policy, a budget, whatever it might be, is you, you wind up with as many third-party endorsers as you possibly can. Uh, so if it's a policy on health, you try and get the GPs to come out and say it's a great policy or the nursing homes or whoever it might be, That's uh, which is, a, I suppose, a sensible thing to do. When it goes into bullying, however, uh, then it is unethical, immoral and very likely illegal. Uh, so that if you are, in any sense, offering an inducement to come out and say and support the policy, then then uh, I am not a lawyer, but my guess is you are running very close to breaking the law and you are certainly acting unethically and demorally. But yes, it, it does happen. I think, however, maybe an even worse thing than that occurs inside politics where good people go into the system with good intentions, and they don't prosecute them. And I can give you some dramatic examples of that. And probably one of the saddest ones was my forerunner as president of the Australian Conservation Foundation, the largest and oldest of the environmental groups in this country. There's Peter Garrett, a former president of the Australian Conservation Foundation, who goes into politics becomes a minister and everyone says, well, now we are really going to get some significant actions and change. And what happens? Absolutely nothing. And is that because Peter Garrett is a bad man and, you know, didn't really hold these good views? No, it's not because of that at all. It's because the system grabs hold of him and strangles his voice. Uh, I, I think another example, I'm afraid to say of that, was Malcolm Turnbull himself. People forget he was the Minister for the Environment. Yeah. You know, this has kind of disappeared now into history. So he held that position. It is the Minister who makes the decisions under the law in Parliament, as I had to remind Malcolm on a number of occasions. And he was the minister who approved the guns pulp mill in Tasmania, the mill that was going to pulp some of the old growth forests and pollute Bass Strait. It was Malcolm Turnbull who signed all the approvals for that mill. Equally, however, it was Tony Burke when he was the minister for the environment, so a minister in the Labor government. I'm, I'm very uh, equal in dispensing my criticisms here. It was Tony Burke who signed the approvals for the Woodside Gas Hub in the Kimberley, the world's largest gas hub that would have destroyed a large part of the wilderness, uh, the Kimberley Wilderness Area. Happily, neither of those projects have ever been built. But I'm just saying, these aren't bad people. I mean, they, I think Tony Burke held good views on the environment. Did he ever do anything with them? Nothing. 
absolutely nothing at all. So I am therefore strongly of the view that with certainly with the major parties, the only way you can really change them is to drive them from outside. You have to, they won't drink the water unless you literally tie them up, lead them down and, and put their mouth in the dam. It's, uh, it's a bit politer than what uh, uh, I think uh, uh, Barry Jones, who, uh, who we had on here before, yes. uh, Barry, Barry uh, was a bit more blunt. He said you need to blow the whole oh. lot up, frankly. And, and, and it's really important, Jeff, because people don't understand how that happens. How do, and I know Charlie asked this question of Malcolm very directly, how does a good person who, before they enter Parliament, sound like they're going to be great, but they get into Parliament and it's almost like they've had a frontal lobotomy and when they come out, they get their brain reinserted again. Yes. What what is it that's going on in Parliament? You know, we all think we might know that it's you know what is it? I mean, is it is there a you know Dr Jekyll in there that straps people down and puts a helmet on their head, or is it dollars? Or what is going on? Or is the system flawed that's making good people uh, act in ways which almost seem unconscionable for how they would have been? Only months, only months before they arrived in that place. What is it with that place? Yes. Well, I mean, you held up Barry Jones' book, which uh, I had the great privilege of reading in the manuscript, and and I'm I'm so proud to be one of the endorsers on the cover of that book, because uh, uh, Barry, I think, there does delineate with his usual extraordinary skill a lot of these issues and there's a chapter in that book on climate change where he poses a great number of questions that he's almost putting to the politicians to answer, every one of which is so cram-packed with irony that I doubt any, any politician would even recognise it. But uh, yeah, Barry says blow them up. I, I, one would quite like to do that, but I think the tragedy is that and political courage is made fun of. It's, it's a phrase that's come to mean you want to blow yourself up if you're a politician with courage. But it, all, it does all come down to that. It comes down to the fact that uh, you have to be prepared to risk your career at certain points. And again, let, let me come back because I, I did act as a consultant to John Howard for quite a long time, which was a peculiar thing for me to do. Uh, I, I was simply asked to do it by Mr. Howard. I had no, I've never been a member of a political party. I had no connection with the Liberal Party. I, I didn't really like a lot of his social policies, but it seemed a remarkable thing to have a go at. And I would have been very happy to have done it for Bob Hawke or Paul Kidding. I think he thought it was an honour. But I did see him act with political courage. And I signed on to work with him not long before the Port Arthur massacre. And um, people don't understand that he risked his entire career on that. And it looked like uh, the, the country party, as I think it was then still, worked very hard, they, they threatened him, they said, you know, guns are vital to our very existence. I've never quite understood why, but anyway, that was their view. And I said to him, are you going to 
pull back from this. And he said, there's no way in the world they can throw me out. There's no way in the world I'm going to pull back from that. And it was that persistence. And, and that is raw courage. It really is. And then the skill to bring the states together, because you remember that that was all state legislation that had to be enacted. The, the political skill to do that. But the thing that drove it was the courage to stand up and say, no, no, I'm not, I'm not backing away from this. And he did that a few times. He did it on the GST, nearly lost his job again. Whether you think that was a good thing or not, he did persist with it. And I think that is an essential element. And that's a personal quality. So you've got to find people and you would say Paul Keating was like that. He, yeah. you know, many times did that. Uh, Hawkey did it to some degree. You might remember on issues like uh, Israel, I think. Uh, he, he stood up and put his career at risk. Whereas there were some other people, and maybe Malcolm Fraser is an, a bit of an example of this, although he was very good on race, always Malcolm, when he was the Prime Minister. But on a lot of other things, when he was prime minister, he wasn't so good. And then, as you say, the minute he wasn't the prime minister, suddenly yeah. all of these things go forward. So I, I think if you want to work inside the political party, then you've got to look for candidates who, who that's their essential quality. They've got the courage to say, I don't care, throw me out. I'm here and I'm going to make a change while I'm here. And they're very hard to find. Uh, I don't want to... Um... Uh, in any way be perceived to be favouring any, anybody's particular views here. But, but the, the, you know, I know um, the, the issue, uh, you and Malcolm had a, um, a, a, an interesting relationship is the best way to describe it, a, a, a formidable relationship. I wonder whether it isn't just courage because arguably Malcolm stood up for the for the ETS and lost by one vote. He was taken out by his own party. And then, so he got dumped by them as leader. That took a bit of courage. I mean, he didn't have to take that to the vote he did. Uh, and then he tried to jam through the neg and got uh, shafted in relation to to that. In both cases, losing when he decided to, uh, decided to, to walk. Now, what I felt is that maybe he hadn't appealed to the people. He was constantly yeah. appealed to the party. And I, and I think that was, you know, a failure of, of, of confidence to understand that maybe, and I, what am I, I'm not, I'm not, you know, I haven't been in politics, but my own view is, is that your only protection at that level is with the people, not with the party. Yes, yes. Well, in, in fairness, I agree with you. And I'd like to clarify, I never had any bad relationship with Malcolm Turnbull, whatever, until... He became the Minister for the Environment. I had known him on and off for many years. We'd never had a harsh word as far as I'm aware. And I said to him at that time, you know, your Minister Turnbull, if it was Minister Jones, I'd be having an argument with Minister Jones. So I'd hate anyone to think it was some kind of personality clash. But no, I agree with you. Yes, it, 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 well, I think you're right. It's courage and it's persistence and it is the skill to bring people with you. Uh, you need those three things. The, the, the tragedy, I suppose, is that a lot of people who might have those qualities aren't prepared to go into politics. And I can't talk. I, I was asked a couple of times. I, it's not something I would ever do. I never wanted to do it. I wasn't prepared to do it. 
We can't so get I, you in a big Senate seat. We can't whip you into a Senate seat now. You know, we're going to have an above the line party here. We could, uh, we can whip you in New South Wales. You can, you can head the I can uh, Senate ticket if you like. It's it's, it's so kind of you. <laughs> I, I think I have a hair appointment that day. <laughs> I can't quite make it. No, and and it's sad. And and as you rightly say, uh, or you are, I think, implying, there are many great people in business who do have enormous leadership qualities and they're not prepared to do it either. Uh, so you can't be really critical of the people that we end up with in many cases. I don't know how you solve that problem. Of course, the difference in the United States is that if you want to run for president, you can run for president without necessarily going through all the party system and that kind of thing. You can't do that in Australia. Uh, if you want to go into an administration in the United States, you can give up your business career for a few years, take a senior position in the administration and build a political career out of that. We well, can't do that under our system either. So it is, I think, probably for a lot of business people, it's just not an attractive proposition to, to go give up a large business career and then go and spend years and years toiling away as a backbencher or what have you. But it's a tragedy. I'm not sure it's one uh, that's solvable under the present system. Is, do you think it's fair to say that the state of the world as we're experiencing it now and certainly the worst of it is largely attributable to the silence of good people? And do you think that that perhaps there isn't the same trading value of courage because it's inconvenient often, whether it's inconvenient to um, capitalist system because, you know, there are certain narratives that, that uh, make money and others that don't are inconvenient truths. Um, and perhaps is the antidote replacing greater value in society and transferring that to, to the corporate world and to the political world on courage, as inconvenient as that can be? Um, is that even possible? And how, how significant is it that people no longer remain silent? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the whole uh, theme of my life in recent years. So I, I uh, endorse what I think are the sentiments behind your question. Yeah, I mean, the old quote, evil can only occur when good, good people remain silent is, is uh, a self-evident truth. However, I think, uh, getting off all the negatives we've been talking about, that a lot of big corporations and public institutions have come to understand that you can't build sustainable value in a large corporation or a public institution unless you take all of these other factors into account. And the evidence for that in business is pretty strong. So that if you look now at the history of companies of similar size and profitability who have good reputations and strong brands, the value that the stock market attributes to those companies can be several times more than a company with the same revenue, the same profitability, but who has all kinds of reputational risks attached to it. Because the stock market looks at it and it doesn't just deal with the figures. 
it looks at it and it says, well, that company there, that, that one with a good reputation with a billion dollars worth of revenue and a hundred million dollars worth of profit, people like that, governments like it, the public like it, the customers like it. It's a more sustainable business. And this one over here that's, yeah, it's got a billion dollars worth of revenue and a hundred million dollars worth of profit, that's always under attack. We don't know what's going to happen with it. So the value of the first one is, you know, 2x and the value of the other one is half x. And that is compelling evidence. And I think more and more people are beginning to understand that. And it's exactly the same for all kinds of other organisations. Uh, even, you know, theatre companies who have subscribers well, if people like the way the theatre companies run and they like the plays that are put on and they feel that the actors are treated well and so on, the subscribers stay and they renew. And if they don't like them and they think, you know, the, the way the thing is being run is bad. And, and, and the negative feelings could easily come from the fact that the board of directors has handled an issue, let's say, to deal with women very bad. The subscribers are saying, we don't really like this. The sponsors will say, I'm not sure we really want to be connected with a company that doesn't treat women well or doesn't pay people properly. And the consciousness of that, I think, is growing at a phenomenally rapid pace. And that's why I feel very positive. Apart from all these negative things we're talking about, I feel very positive that this is a great time to affect change if we go about it in the right way. Yeah, yeah, I must say, I, uh, I listened to that, Jeff, and I'm gonna come from a bit of a negative uh, point of view. I mean, um, we've, we've had the beginning of business take action on climate change, you know, 20 years ago, business was going to lead. Um, the question of courage from business uh, in relation to speaking up about these matters or, or acting in ways um, that don't put um, the protection of their profits first. Uh, I, I simply don't see, uh, um, for, for example, you know, my own experience, which might be the challenge of wandering between big business and, uh, and, and politics is that, uh, you know, ministerial minions will call up your employer and suddenly you find what is a, 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 an unpaid leave situation to go and stand as a political candidate becomes miraculously incompatible with future employment as a result of concern over people losing things like banking licenses. Um, so in the Australian environment where business and government is so close, there has to be another step here is that it must be fundamentally illegal, surely, for governments to use effectively what is a taxpayer's rights or the ability to damage uh, businesses by using government policy as retribution for actually speaking up uh, as for their, for their CEOs or their senior executives speaking up about matters or, or even engaging in politics. I've never seen a situation where uh, to be honest, this would be the only country that I'm aware of because I had a look through afterwards and I found it you know, relatively illegal that, that uh, it appears that companies consider it to be reasonable to terminate people's employment for uh, standing for, uh, for politics. W what does that say about the backbone of our large corporates in this country? 
Yes, well, I, I, I would say that easily. Uh, and again, I stress I'm not a lawyer, but if such a thing ever occurred on a board that I was on, I would say that is absolutely illegal. And um, apart from being unethical and moral and everything else, uh, if you feel the law is not clear on that, then, uh, and it proves to be so, uh, then the law ought to be changed unquestionably. I'd be pretty confident that certainly the employment laws alone would would make that illegal. I suspect there would be some some other laws as well that would do so. But yeah, I mean um, that kind of pressure is is simply wrong, and you shouldn't need a law uh, to be written in order to make that clear and uh, any board that doesn't understand that shouldn't be there but we have had compelling evidence that boards don't even seem to understand a lot of the laws that are written. Yeah. I think a few of us have been on boards for very short periods of time uh, for one reason or another. I have a, I personally have a three board uh, board rule which is uh, you know if you don't like what you see after three board meetings, you should get off pretty quickly is generally my view, which I think a lot of shareholders tend to follow. They do tend to look for yes. uh, to see what's happening on boards just to see whether people hold their position. Uh, yeah. But not enough attention, I think, is paid by uh, by shareholders to, uh, to the kind of three, three board rule. We just had Tim Buckley um, come on one of our recent um, podcasts and... Um, yeah, he was saying that effectively Adani's going to go ahead, right? I know it'll go ahead in a small way, you know, anyway. I mean, here there is, um, you know, clear, uh, you know, very strong reasons why uh, Australia and, and most, nearly every institution signed up to not opening another coal basin. And Galilee clearly is a brand new coal basin. Um, how how have we how have we got to a situation where um, you know there's very few people who are going to stand to benefit from the opening of that long term damage will be done as a result of the opening of that resource and it's still proceeding as we speak you know there are rail lines slowly being put in place to enable you know clearing of the brimble box forest and digging up of aquifers and and yet further emissions. What, what do you take away from uh, our failure um, to, to, to deal with these, these matters? What courage should we put in place? Well, I'll take away a deep scar, that's for sure, if that mine is finally built. I don't yet accept that that's the case because in all of the other big campaigns I've been involved with, uh, at various times, people told me that they were all over and and uh, construction had started. I mean, you could uh, fly over the site for the Woodside gas oven, you'd see all the scars in the earth there where Woodside put in D9s and ripped up the land, but there isn't a mine there. So I'm not yet accepting that. However, and incidentally, Tim, of course, has been just a wonderful yeah. source of analysis and, uh, and intelligence regarding that, that whole project. Uh, but it would be a very deep scar for me if that mine goes ahead and, and I think for, an, well, I know for an enormous number of other people. Um, I, I, one of the sad things I'd say about that is that the track record of the environment groups in a lot of these big campaigns is to give up far too soon. 
or as they put it, to move on. Uh, it's, it's time for us to move on. And a, a lot of this uh, talk comes from a concept, well, look, we've only got limited resources and therefore we've got to allocate them where they'll be most useful. And it looks like we've lost this thing, so we better move on and now use our resources somewhere else. Uh, almost everything about those statements is, is completely wrong. Uh, what we proved, I think, at the ACF uh, when I was there, uh, and, and we proved this particularly on Adani, is that you have unlimited resources if you are actually doing something. So uh, when I went to India on the Adani issue, which everybody said was a crazy uh, adventure that would uh, prove to be of no value, and I must say I was pretty worried about that myself, uh, the ACF, which is a very effective fundraising organisation, and once all that began to appear in the press back in Australia that we were in India, and, and I didn't go incidentally representing the ACF because the ACF doesn't operate outside of Australia in any way. It was likely that I would get into some trouble there that probably wouldn't help the reputation of the ACF. So I went as a private citizen, but as soon as those reports came, and the ACF was sending out fundraising messages. In 24 hours, they, they got six times the highest 24-hour total of, of incoming revenue that they'd had in the 65-year history of that organisation. And that, that continued. So in other words, if you're actually doing something in these organisations, instead of talking about doing something or publishing a paper about it, money floods in. So the idea that a lot of these people express, well, we've only got the limited resources, we've got to put them where they matter, is a nonsense. And secondly, the history of all the great environmental campaigns around the world, particularly in Australia, is never give up. Uh, if you raft the Franklin River, which I, I did... Uh, 30, nearly 39 years ago, we were the first commercial rafting party to go down. You can still see there, I'm told, uh, where the access road was cut in for the Franklin Dam. It cost $10 million to build that road. It's a big road, still there, probably a bit more overgrown than it was 39 years ago. But, and everyone said, well, that's it. Look, they're building the road. So yes, it is true that Adani's looking more dangerous than anything else I've been involved with, but there isn't a mine there yet. And no one should have given up on it as most of the environment groups have, not all but most. And it is such an iconic issue that if the environment movement in this country can't win that darn thing, I don't know what they're ever going to win. So there are still some of us working on it. And um, I think there is still a chance to stop it. Uh, unfortunately, I, I, I don't think that kind of things only happen in Australia. I think the track record of the environment movement around the world hasn't been that good. And if it had been that good, we wouldn't be in the situation we're in. I mean, demonstrably, 
And again, that's where you've got to be honest with yourself. You've got to judge your own performance and say, are we not succeeding here? If we're not, then we'd better change the way we work. It's no good to say, no, we're doing a great job. It's the politicians who are doing badly. And that's what the environment movement tends to say. We're doing wonderfully well. Well, in business or, or anywhere in your life, if that's the view you take, you're not honest with yourself, then you won't fix things. So as much as I love all the people in the environment movement, I remain critical of a lot of the organisations. Yeah, I, I agree with the, the giving up side of things. I personally have been doing a lot of research on legal personality of the reef and what that would require. There was a lot of work that was done that was subsequently defunded um, by not only the state, but the federal government for the EDOs that were really you know, pursuing that case. There's a lot of legs on that case, to be honest. And we've got the precedent in uh, New Zealand with the um, Wanganui River and... Uh, yeah, and I think that, you know, that's still a viable legal case. Um, I actually am also looking at that as customary international law to look at it, the Indigenous, uh, well, if we assume that we have Indigenous sovereignty and Mabo case helped that, um, then we recognise that they have customary relationship with nature that's uh, far ancient than any sort of custom law. Uh, I mean, a common law uh, that we have, have imposed on them. So there is still legal cases that could be that that have validity here. Perhaps it's just um, a, we need a revamp in the broader consciousness that this is still something there are still avenues to have and, and we could still support this. Do you feel that there's a lack of uh, public support still um, or is it just uh, has that fizzled, I guess, out of feeling despondent and, and like there's no power? Uh, look, I don't think the public support has fizzled at, at all. I think it could be reignited in a flash. You've got to remember on the Adani issue, it fizzled several times. Uh, it fizzled the first time around because, again, a lot of the environment movement said we've won it. I don't know whether you remember that time. Yep, yep. No, definitely. Everyone was pretty clear that they'd, uh, they'd won it. Yep, that's right. You see, so they've got, there's the rock at the top of the hill that we're trying to push over. It's very heavy. Everyone's pushing it and it begins to rock a bit. And everyone says, oh, pull back now. We've won it. And the rock settles back into place and sinks into the ground. When the rock starts to move, you get in and you push it harder. So it faded away. Then we had to reignite it. And that's really when I uh, became very, very uh, exercised about it, as did a number of other people. And Bob Brown came in and gave it a big heave as well. And we got it going again. Um, so the public will come back in a flash. And that's something, you know, I knew that to a degree from my communications background, but I didn't understand how quickly it could be done and how effectively it could be done until I became an environmental activist. And I've learned so much from that about communications that I didn't understand before. There are huge numbers of people out there who are just looking for some form of and leadership's an overused word, some form of activity that they can understand and that they can participate in. Uh, you don't really need to be some great orator or 
kind of charismatic leader in that sense. You just need to do something and then say to people, look, we could do a bit more of this and, and you could help us to do a bit more of it. So I know you can re-energize these things very rapidly. And I think, as I say, the Adani campaign is a very good example of that. It had, it's had several ups and downs. But you do have to, you've always got to have a core community on side. One of the great errors that was made in that campaign originally, originally was no effort was put in at all, was really put into building up a base in the local communities in North Queensland. Well, that's crazy. Uh, I mean, the big fight in Tasmania with the guns pop well, yes, of course, there were communities that were absolutely fundamentally opposed the timber communities, but we managed to build constituencies that were very powerful, as powerful as those uh, who were opposed to it. You can't just say we're going to kind of run a national campaign and not deal with the local issues. You've got to do both. And you've also got to be creative. Yes, the law and legal action is very important and at times is the is the deciding factor. But probably most big environmental campaigns aren't won through the law or they're won only in part through the law. You've got to be creative. You've got to be inventive. You've got to... The idea that you know what will work is silly. Nobody knows. I've done some things that I thought were absolutely brilliant. My God, I said to my wife, how brilliant is this idea? Absolute failure. No response of any kind. Then I did something that I thought was insignificant and suddenly a skyrocket goes off. You've got to try everything. and You've got to keep trying and never give up. And, and that's a hard lesson to learn. No, I just said, but it's such an important one and it's one that we need to listen and pay heed to now more than ever, whether it's fighting against the political corruption uh, that we have or for the environmental failures that they've that, that is likely to be their legacy. Um, it's not it's not an option to give up, frankly, uh, and we need to pursue it and we need to come together around it. It's, it's not an option. And there's always another avenue. And, uh, you know, on Adani, uh, there are lots of things that can be done. Uh, you know, I'm not suggesting that the strategy that Adani is now using, which is basically to proceed quietly under the cloak of COVID. That's really what they're doing. They're feeling that a big dark cloak has been thrown over it and everyone's lost interest because they, they're trying to look after themselves and their own lives and look after jobs. So that's been very useful for them. It's like an army advancing uh, under a thick fog, if you will. But sooner or later, the fog will lift. And when it does, the sun comes down and you can see all of these uh, gorillas along with their wings and, and you can do something about it. So uh, people mustn't give up. And uh, hopefully there are a lot who aren't. Well, Jeff, thank you for those, uh, those words. I mean, I think that's um, something that certainly Charlie and I and a few of our... Uh, our team are have uh, been you know struggling with we I think everybody in campaigns you go through uh, three challenges I mean Mark who was on was talking about how trust in in our democracy is probably at the lowest time in the nation's history you know whether it whether it be integrity whether it be you know really bad behaviour or uh, 
or corruption. A lot of people want to change in politics. Um, I'd love to have your, uh, your, your agency, if, uh, if they were pro bono, to help us uh, put a message out. But, um, but uh, we, we certainly think people need to uh, show some courage and stand up and recognise that their voice can have an impact. And I'm really worried from time to time that, um, that there is uh, um, you know, a lack of, of courage and actually timidness in the importance of individuals to actually participate in their political system one way or another. And, and, and as, I mean, as, as you say, it really shouldn't matter um, what party you're involved in. Um, the key, what you want is whatever party you're involved in to act uh, in the nation's best interest with integrity and without corruption. And um, I guess what we're concerned about, uh, certainly the people who we uh, you know, participate with is that um, the party system that's currently in place is not leading those people to politics so that they can enable and, and achieve that change. So uh, we're we, we continuing to push that rock. It's a bloody big rock, though. Uh, though Jeff. It's been there for a long period of time. This two-party system effectively has been locked in yeah. for a long period of time. We are seeing the independents start to stand, which is so wonderful because people who have external experience can now have a chance to stand in politics. Um, and I hope that, you know, these efforts not only will lead us and lead people to stand more for politics, but also stand for the environment and what they see that's, that's right. So, um, look, I'd like to, um, look, thank you so much for, uh, for, for joining us today and, and sharing your, uh, your wisdom, your integrity, uh, and your stand on so many issues over such a long period of time with us and, uh, and all our, uh, and all our listeners. Um, I do hope that, um, that, uh, that um, there is nothing more than a little scratch that's left out there and you succeed. And I have faith that there's COVID lifts and people get in their combi vans or whatever way they go there and they, uh, they get their welders in place and start to attack any forms of uh, you know, foreign metal objects that might be out there in, uh, in Northern Queensland. And, um, and there is success with this, uh, this campaign. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. And, and Charlie, thanks again. Thank you very much, Oliver. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the Independence Can podcast. Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or through the Apple Podcast app and be sure to tweet us your thoughts, suggestions and insights using the Independence Can podcast hashtag.